on the, the morning of the Lord's Day, the Sabbath day. It's good to welcome you in. Welcome to those joining us online to the adult Bible class. And may the Lord bless you also by his word. Let us open in a word of prayer, please. This is the day that the Lord hath made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. We thank thee, Lord, for thy day, a day set apart to have fellowship with thee and thy people, to have our souls fed, uh, to be corrected, to be instructed in all of those matters that tend to righteousness. And we do thank thee, Lord, for this time of teaching. And we pray, Lord, firstly, forgive our sins. Secondly, give us a teachable spirit. And thirdly, may Christ be exalted as we apply and understand thy precious word. And we pray these things in his name only. Amen. Open your copies of God's word to Hebrews chapter 4, please. Hebrews chapter 4. And as we did last week, we'll read together the first 11 verses. Hebrews chapter 4. So Hebrews is just before James, if you see James. Hebrews chapter 4, verse, reading from verse 1. Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. For we which have believed do enter into rest. As he said, as I have sworn in my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spake in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest. Seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again he limiteth a certain day, saying in David, Today, after so long a time, as it is said, Today, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Jesus, that is Joshua, had given them rest, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that is entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from, from his. Let us labor therefore to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Amen. So as I mentioned uh, last, last week, um, that would have been a little bit of a discussion uh, with some of the younger adults who'd listened to some of the teaching of certain dispensational uh, Baptists who declared, amongst other things, that the fourth commandment, uh, if it has any validity at all to the New Testament church, it, it is of just a time of going to church, and it is not a Sabbath. And then trying to split up, uh, as they like to split things up, uh, the Lord's Day from uh, the Christian Sabbath, and saying they're not one and the same. 
and as I mentioned, it was specifically the preaching of, of John MacArthur on that subject, he being dispensational in much of his views, and partially reformed as well in other views. Um, even there, he makes a division, <laughs> not only in his preaching, but also in his theology, but that's a, another point. But his idea is, as I've mentioned, that the Lord's Day is not the Sabbath day. So it's a contradiction of, uh, of 2,000 years of Christianity. It's a contradiction of, uh, of the confessional documents that we have. And as I hope to prove today, it's a contradiction of simple teaching of Scripture. Um, because we see that there's a point here with MacArthur does not mean that we call him a heretic or a false teacher. Uh, that is not what we're saying. He's a very faithful man, especially in the preaching of the gospel. Uh, but we have disagreements, and this is one of them, and that's not an unimportant one either. So our verse, uh, as it was last week, is Hebrews 4 and verse 9, uh, that we've just read as well. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God, which, as we touched upon, of all the words rest, and there are many words rest in chapter 4 of Hebrews, uh, that this word is a, a different word of all the other words, and, th and this word for rest is a Sabbath rest. It's a Sabbath keeping, and therefore you could translate uh, Hebrews 4 and verse 9, there remaineth therefore a Sabbath keeping or a Sabbath rest to the people of God. And as I mentioned, it's a, it's a, a, a Greek version of, of the Hebrew word Sabbath, uh, the Sabbatismos, a, a Sabbath keeping. Now we saw last time uh, in the background to the Christian Sabbath, we looked at the three main periods of time uh, that we see. The, we have the Sabbath in the pre-fall world. There's also the Sabbath that we saw uh, in the patriarchal period, and then the Sabbath in the time of Moses onwards, or when, it, when the law had been given. Um, and so now, with the Lord's help this morning, we'll look at the beginning of the Christian Sabbath. So we've had the background to the Christian Sabbath, and now the beginning. And when I say the beginning... It's not, we're not examining the change of day. The change of day is something we will examine as we come to that question of the catechism. But it's to see this, the Christian Sabbath existing in uh, the New Testament. In fact, it's going to rely very much on the understanding of the continuation of the moral law. So the command to keep the Sabbath day is, well, it's the fourth commandment. It's the fourth of the Ten Commandments. And what does it do? It reminds mankind of the pre-existing Sabbath to be kept. And as we touched upon, it says, remember the Sabbath day. It is not introducing it as a new doctrine. It is re reminding, it was reminding the people of God who were already keeping it to remember it, to continue to keep it, to maintain uh, the Sabbath. And, and nowhere, then this is a direct rebuttal of what dispensationalists and others might say, nowhere in the New Testament is there a change of God's moral standards declared. There's no change anywhere. All, one to ten, are, are all God's moral standard. And they are, therefore, to be kept. Of course, we're not to keep the Pharisees' extra rules and applications. That's, 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 that's very clear. Uh, they, they corrupted the Sabbath and many other commandments. But the law as it's taught and as it's exemplified, and we'll look more at that uh, very shortly. There's so much to be said, and as I was preparing this, I was realizing, well, there's many other things that could not be said and brought out, and so if, you, if something's not said, then, then you'll understand why we only have a limited time. 
Now, the moral law is to be kept because the Sabbath, just like the rest of the moral law, is a, is a covenantal sign. It's a covenantal um, a thing between God and between uh, His people. A holy God with a holy law and a holy people. How, how are the people otherwise to be holy than to keep the holy law and commandments of a holy God? Be ye holy as I am holy. God's holy standards have not diminished in fact, in some ways, in the New Testament, they've been, made, they've been made deeper. Or at least they've been declared to be deeper. So let us understand that in the New Testament then, firstly, the moral law is fulfilled. It is not abrogated. That's a, a posh word. So it is fulfilled. It is not removed. It is not changed. It is not uh, mutilated in any way. It's been fulfilled. Not put an end to. Now, there are certain dispensationalists who will make this claim. They'll say, well, if a certain commandment is not, uh, is not repeated, is not quoted in the New Testament, then it is no longer valid in the New Testament. But that command or, that, or, or, or an indication or a prophecy or a hint is, uh, that that is true is found nowhere in the Scriptures. Nowhere in the Scriptures does it say uh, that the law, in, when it goes out to the Gentiles or in the New Testament period, that in some way it will be changed, that it will be altered, that it will be reduced, that it will go from ten to nine or to eight or to seven. I mean, who is to say otherwise? There's no way that it says that it must be repeated before it can be accepted as continuing to be valid. The thing is, the moral law has an abiding claim on the people of God. It has an abiding claim. And the law condemns the breakers of it. The law still condemns the breakers of it. How can you preach the law and the gospel if you say, well, the law is not quite, you don't quite have to keep to it as the Bible says? The law is still used to drive the convicted sinner to Christ. It was used to drive old Israel to Christ. And when Paul wrote to the Galatian Christians, the Gentile Christians, he said exactly the same thing to them. It, was to, it is to drive everyone to Christ. And Galatians 3 and verse 24 says that. Wherefore, for which reason, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. And he's not just speaking on behalf of the Jews himself as a Jew. He's speaking to the Galatians that we, we church, we are driven to Christ. And the law is the rule of life for those who are saved from condemnation. As I've mentioned before, we're not saved from sin to become sinners. Paul explains the same things again to Gentile Christians in Rome. Romans 13 and verse 9, For this thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet, and if there be any other commandment, it is briefly comprehended in this saying, namely, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Notice there, he only quotes the second table. Does that mean he then negates the first table. Well, we'll look at that very shortly. But the abandoning of God's law in any way is condemned outright by the words of Christ himself in Matthew 5. He makes it very clear. I don't know how the dispensationalists get around this, but maybe they'll just put draw a line afterwards and say, well, that's a different time period. It's probably how they do it. And he says in Matthew 5, 17 to 19, he says, Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. 
I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law, till all be fulfilled. Whosoever therefore shall break one of these least commandments, and shall teach men so, he shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whosoever shall do and teach them, the same shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Now Matthew Henry's commentary on this is very, very stark. And he says that being called least in the kingdom of heaven is that you're not even in it. I'm not too sure I could go so far with the exegesis in that passage. But it is terrifying to think that it's not only that you break them yourself, but then you teach others to break them, that you have the condemnation of Christ himself. Now those that teach the breaking of commandments, of any commandments, maybe all the commandments, and those that then teach them to do so are making an heretical error, which we call antinomianism. And antinomianism means that you believe that there is no law to the Christian. So I don't know what filthy and immoral and godless church the antinomians think Christ is building. But antinomianism is contrary to the teaching, the plain teaching, and the spirit of, of Scripture. Now, moral law is in effect because we are to be a moral uh, people, and you cannot, you cannot change the moral standards of God. Even though you may teach it, the moral standards remain. You cannot change them or add to them. Because the Pharisees, when we were looking um, only recently in Mark 7, uh, when we see that the Lord rebuked them for the uh, same thing, we see that what the Pharisees were also were antinomians. And you think, yeah, but these were legalists par, by par excellence. They, they added to the law this, that, and the other. Yes, but as we understand, they made the word of God of none effect through their tradition, which ye have delivered and many such thing, like things you do. So adding to the law, changing the law, twisting the law, and adding all your own laws although it is legalism, is a form of antinomianism because it's taking away the law of God and replacing it with your own. You're an antinomian legalist. Now, that might sound like a contradiction, but it's a description of the Pharisees. Now, as regards to the fourth commandment, such dispensationalists are guilty of antinomianism to that degree in as far as they, as they deny a commandment they are an antinomian, antinomian in that regard. But to come back to the argument that each of the Ten Commandments must be literally quoted in the New Testament for it to still be valid, as I said, there is nowhere in Scripture where that is taught or hinted at or prophesied about at all. But it's interesting that they then only apply this to the Fourth Commandment. And I don't I could be cynical and say, well, it's maybe because they want to go to a restaurant after church. Maybe because they want to play, play or watch uh, a football match uh, on, on the Lord's Day. They want to have, uh, it not as the Lord's Day, but as, uh, as their own day of their own pleasure as opposed to pleasure in the Lord. Whatever the, the reason is, but they only apply it to the fourth commandment. And so there's nowhere in scriptural, we have no scriptural authority to say what they say. But interestingly enough, we do not find any of the first table literally quoted. 
We keep on seeing the second table quoted and quoted and quoted, but the first table is not quoted. So if we would, they were to be consistent, uh, they would have to say that, Christ, that, that therefore Christians have the authority to be atheists, idolaters, blasphemers, as well as Sabbath breakers. Now they wouldn't go that far, but it is the logical conclusion to their own error. But we'll look at uh, some more details of that shortly. So the moral law is fulfilled, it is not abrogated, it is not removed, it is not changed. Secondly, what we do see is that the moral law is exalted. The moral law is exalted, and we see that firstly in the Savior's ministry. And as I say, the, the Lord never once says, He never ever once says that the law is no longer valid. We've just read His own, his own words. He says, that the law is not, and then we get His own words, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, destroy but to fulfill. So in his ministry, uh, we see that very, very clearly. What about his interaction with the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler comes and says, well, let's just read from Luke 18, Luke 18, verses 18 to 21, and we'll see what passes. And a certain ruler asked him, saying, good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, why callest thou me good? None is good save one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother. And he, that is the rich young ruler, said, all these have I kept from my youth up. You see, the, 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 law, the Lord is very clear that the place of the law is continuing. It hasn't changed it hasn't changed in the slightest, and that's the first thing he does when he speaks in the New Testament period to this rich, young ruler. Now, coming back to the Sabbath, the Lord himself is accused many times by the Pharisees and by the scribes of breaking the Sabbath day. He, he never broke the Sabbath day. He broke their Sabbath day. He broke their rules because their rules did not consider... Uh, the, the works of necessity and mercy, but he applied the works of necessity and mercy, and you might be thinking, what, what are we talking about? We will look at that in, in the coming week or two, um, God willing, what that means. He strictly maintained the Sabbath according to the Word of God, according to his own commandment, of course. And of course, we have that works of necessity and mercy that he rebuked them over, and it's true, they did apply it when it suited them in their own time. So Christ is not only our, own, our great example in, in keeping the moral law to the letter, and he had to be, be, to become our sinless Lamb of God. He had to keep the law. He did keep the law. But he's also our great teacher of the moral law. Uh, and we see that, and we will see some of that uh, in a minute. But we know that because his prophet Isaiah prophesied it. Isaiah in chapter 42, verse 21, says this the, concerning the servant, The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. Now we see that in all of his, his teaching. Uh, we see that in the teaching of his apostles. And I think one of, the, one of the places that we see in the scriptures where, where he magnifies the law most greatly is on the Sermon on the Mount. So in the Saviour's ministry, secondly, the Sermon on the Mount, it's, it's there that we see that the Lord, 
He makes it honorable. He, he magnifies it. He rescues it from the corruption of the Pharisees. Because the Pharisees, when it came to the law, they, they invented so many ways of getting around the keeping of the law, or they made the law as difficult as possible that there would be no rejoicing and joy in keeping of the law, and the law is not grievous, but they would make it so. And so he spends a, a large portion of that sermon correcting the Pharisaical misunderstanding. And by so doing, he reveals the, there's, that there's a spiritual and moral depth to the commandments. It's not an outward keeping of, of commandments. There's a, there's, a, there's a depth, there's a spirituality that he reveals. And just very briefly, because there's more than just this, but he touches on three commandments there, although we could uh, expand that and see that there are applications to uh, commandment principles as well, but let's just keep it to the commandments. The sixth commandment which is thou shalt not kill. And, and he claims then that anger and hatred without cause is the breaking of this commandment. Anger within is, is like, is murder. You've murdered someone in your heart. Which is why the Lord says that the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. And, and which Christian does not have that problem of anger. But he says, yep, yeah, it's a murder of the heart anger and hatred. And then he touches on the seventh commandment, and he says, thou shalt not commit, which says, thou shalt not commit adultery. And then he says that lusting after another person is committing adultery in the heart. So it's not just the outward uh, actions, it's not just the actual committing of adultery. It's what happens in the heart. It's certainly not the same as the actual act, but it is an adultery that takes place within the heart. And then he touches again on the ninth commandment, which is thou shalt not bear false witness. And, and, and that commandment is applied to oath swearing, that you do not make an oath, you do not make a promise and break it, else you be a liar. That's an application of the ninth commandment. And he speaks of this, he says oaths are to be kept, but they're not to be lightly made, and they're not to be wrongly made. And that is, a, I think, a series of sermons in and of itself. But he touches on those three commandments and makes it very clear the depth uh, of those commandments. So he exalts the law. That does not change one jot or tittle. So the moral law is fulfilled, not abrogated. The moral law is exalted. Thirdly, the moral law is maintained. It's maintained. So briefly then, we see that the moral law and its abiding has an abiding nature for all believers. What was expected of Adam in the time of innocence and after the fall is what is expected of all of God's people, whether they're Old or New Testament believers. I mean, how by their fruit ye shall know them. The fruit of what? The fruit of repentance, yes. The fruit of the Spirit, yes. And the fruit of, that is the fruit of keeping the law of God aright. Not as legalist, not as Pharisees. Uh, but as the Lord would have us understand it, the spiritual and moral goodness by keeping of the law. And as I mentioned, the first table of the law is not literally quoted in the New Testament, but it's still in effect. When we think, well, that's obvious. Well, it's not quite obvious if you're going to remove one of them. You can't remove one of them uh, because you feel like it. 
Um, they are all connected together, the first table. Not because they're written on the first table, it's because they all reflect something to do with God. Uh, who God is, how he is to be worshipped, how he is to be spoken about, and how, he is to, how we are to have fellowship with him. But it is in effect, because we see that in the summary of the law. The summary of the law is uh, Christ's answer regarding the moral law. And when he speaks to whomever he speaks to, he, he quotes an Old Testament truth. These are taken from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy and Leviticus. And he quotes it there in the New Testament, Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40. We have a, 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 in, in this case, we have somebody coming up to the Lord and saying, Master, which is the great commandment in the Lord? The greatest of all the commandments, he means. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. So in giving the summary of the law, the, law is, the Lord is saying all ten commandments. And all the applications that are in the law and all the applications that are taught by the prophets are all valid. On those two commandments, the first table and the second table, are clearly presented to us as being valid. So not only, is this, not only do we understand in the summary of the law that both tables are 100% still valid, secondly, that the law is not grievous either. The law is not grievous, and bringing it to the fourth commandment, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. It was made for the good of man, as is the case with all the commandments. The commandments are made for the good of each man. They're made for the good of mankind in total. And if the whole of mankind was to keep the fourth commandment, to keep uh, the, the, the first day of seven, keep it separate, stop working, uh, stop seeking entertainment, and seek God, what a change that would be upon the world. What a radical change there would be in society, in politics, in all sorts of matters. But the law is not grievous. And yet you get the impression from dispensationalists that uh, commandments 1 to 3 and commandments 5 to 10 are, are, are great and wonderful commandments, but the fourth commandment, it's, it's grievous, it's Judaical uh, heaviness, it's Pharisaical nonsense. No, the Lord has set us free from that, that heaviness and that duty and that law. Uh, but, the Lord, but the Lord himself says through the Apostle John, he says this, for this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments and his commandments are not grievous. His commandments are not grievous. And that word meaning heavy, difficult, burdensome. And, and connected with that quote brings us to the third understanding that the law is the law of love. Ten ways to love the Lord God. And in those, each of those ten ways, there's a, there's a, there's a, a multitude of ways of applying that. Love, Lord, how can I love thee? How can I love thee with the first commandment, with the second commandment, with the third, with the fourth, etc.? And that's what we've just seen. And so the keeping of the moral law is, is therefore often declared, often declared in the New Testament to be a sign of love between God's people and their God. 
I know they might play games in the Gospels and say, well, up until the Sermon on the Mount, maybe just after the Sermon on the Mount, then we have a split, or we might, we might do it later until he talks to the Syro, uh, Syrophoenician woman, and then she's a Gentile, so we can talk about it. That's the New Testament period. That's not what the Bible teaches us. The Bible teaches us very clear from the first word of Matthew chapter 1, he is beginning the New Testament revelation. But again, they try to split up the church into Jew church and Gentile church, and you cannot find that in the Scriptures. One Lord, one baptism, one church. It's a law of love. It's a sign of love between God's people and their God. Again, we come back to John. John chapter 14 and 15, now the words of Christ. If you love me, keep my commandments. And then a chapter later in John 15 and 10, he says, if you keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. You see, Christ himself expressed his love as the God-man to his own Father by keeping every single commandment of God. Every one of the Ten Commandments in, in their outward form and in their inward expression. In his thoughts and in his words, in everything that he did, he kept the commandments. He had to, for our sakes. But he would do because of his nature, because of his divine nature. He could not sin. But he maintained, and he maintained every commandment to their full moral and spiritual depth. And, and he says there, so is the believer to do. Yeah, ye shall abide in my, if ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So the word and the example of Christ. Fourthly, it's an abiding covenantal sign, and we're coming back now um, again to the fourth commandment, specifically, but it's valid for all of them. Although the fourth commandment is an exception. It has a depth that the others don't do in this case, because the whole of the law... The, the, the Ten Commandments is a covenantal sign between God and His people. But then we also understand that the Sabbath itself is a covenantal sign between God and His people. It has a, a double covenantal value, as it were. And so the keeping of it is an abiding covenantal sign. And that's clearly taught in the verse that we've been looking at today and last week, chapter 4 of Hebrews and verse 9. There remaineth therefore a rest, a sabbatismos, to the people of God. So a Sabbath keeping, a Sabbath rest, a Sabbath worship, it remains a part of the walk and the witness of the people of God to the whole world. And the Sabbath, as we've already noticed, it was made for the good of God's people. It's not, it's not trying to get God's people as, as, a, a, as a square peg and trying to force it into a round hole of Sabbath-keeping. That's not what the Lord teaches. The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath, and therefore the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. So when the Son of God became man, He did so for the good of God's people. As the Lord of the Sabbath... They have in Him and through Him, they have rest from their sin. They have peace with God. They have all, all, they're all in all in Christ. They have their strength in Him. They have their fellowship with God through Him. 
There is so much that we can understand in the relationship that the people have with the Sabbath to what the people have with the Lord of the Sabbath. Calling him the Lord of the Sabbath just points to him as Christ our righteousness and Christ our Prince of Peace. Hence Christ's identifying, identifying of himself as the Lord of the Sabbath, which he does. And he doesn't, do, he doesn't say that to do away with the Sabbath, but to confirm its continued existence and its moral and spiritual depth. The Sabbath had no place, then the Lord would not place any emphasis upon it, but he does. And he takes it as an epithet. An epithet is a personal title. He takes it as a personal title to make sure that the people would understand they do not have to fear the Sabbath, they do not have to despise the Sabbath. Why? Because he is the Lord of the Sabbath. What does the Sabbath mean? It is not what the Pharisees made of it. It's maybe not what other people have made of it. It's what the Lord reveals in his word. And by the way, the reason why the Sabbath is called the Lord's Day is it because Christ is the Lord of the Sabbath. That's all it points to. When we see the Lord's Day in Revelation 1, it's saying ah, that's the day that the Lord has given to himself, given him a special day, the Sabbath day. The Lord of the Sabbath, therefore it is the Lord's Day. Also it refers to, the one refers to the other. There's, there's, there's no split. The two names point to the same day and for the same reason and for the same Sabbath keeping. Else you're just playing with words. But that is something that dispensationalists can be very good at. But not biblical understanding of the words. So the moral law is fulfilled, not abrogated. Secondly, the moral law is exalted. Thirdly, the moral law is maintained. And fourthly, we see the being or the beginning of the eternal Sabbath. The beginning of the eternal Sabbath. And that's what we see in Hebrews 4. Not just in Hebrews 4, we could go to Hebrews 10, we could look at Revelation as well. But Hebrews 4 in its entirety points to the truth that there is a deep and lasting rest for our souls only to be found in Christ. And here's the contradiction. What's the, what's the great rub that we see in chapter 4 as we read, read it? What stops people entering into the rest? Unbelief. Unbelief. That's constantly stared. How come we've entered in? Well, because of faith. But why did they not enter in having heard the same preaching? Because of unbelief because they lacked faith. And so, by faith, the people of God have an eternal rest for their souls to be found only in the Lord of the Sabbath, the Lord of this rest. And that this resting in Christ, it finds its full expression in the eternal Sabbath yet to break forth. There is an eternal Sabbath. Every one day in seven, we're having a foretaste of, being, of having fellowship with God's people of having fellowship in the presence of, of the Spirit of Christ, of having the foretaste of that heavenly worship and that heavenly teaching, uh, of that heavenly life. We just have that little foretaste, which is why it's the Lord's day, not the Lord's hour and a half. We, we, we desire to have the day with the Lord, but that one day in seven points, uh, most especially uh, to 
the full fruits of redemption. I think I've mentioned it before. The Old Testament Sabbath that we can see from Exodus 20, the reasoning behind it is because God rested from his works of creation. But in Deuteronomy 5, the repetition of the law, the second giving of the same Ten Commandments, we have a difference in the fourth commandment. The fourth commandment points to redemption. It talks about the fact that you were once slaves in, in Egypt, but the Lord delivered you. It's a, it's, and that is the difference between the Old Testament Sabbath and the New Testament Sabbath. The Old Testament Sabbath, it, it, it looks at the covenant of creation, but the second one looks at the covenant of redemption. And, and that's what we have. It's a redemption. It's a setting free and, and ultimately being fulfilled in the eternal Sabbath of ever being with the Lord, of ever worshipping God, of ever being free from Satan and from sin and from all forms of wicked slavery and having that full freedom in the glory of Christ. That is the eternal Sabbath yet to break forth. Why then would the people, the New Testament people of God, be robbed of that understanding and robbed of that hope? They're not. Not according to the Scriptures. An eternity with Christ, an eternity of resting in His arms, of worshipping Him like we've never worshipped Him before. This is the eternal Sabbath, and this is the foretaste that we have. Revelation 14 and verse 13, and we'll close with this quote. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Write, Blessed are the dead which die in the Lord from henceforth. Yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, and their works do follow them. Amen. Are there any questions at all? I mean, you might want to ask them later or put them in an email. As I said, there's much more that could be delved in, but we will look at question 59, I believe, uh, next time, um, all being well, and move on. Yeah, next time we'll examine the change, and I've hinted at it already from an, uh, an examination of creation to an examination of redemption. That's certainly the core of it. If there are no questions, we'll close this adult Bible class in a word of prayer, please. Our merciful and glorious Lord, we give thee thanks for all thy kindnesses and benefits to thy people. And not least of all are the Sabbath rests. And we thank Thee, Lord, for this weekly Sabbath that we're drawn aside to fellowship with Christ and His people. That, Lord, that we may have our, uh, our souls challenged and fed, changed. That we may learn more and more of who Christ is, that we may glorify Him and love Him more. Uh, Lord, help us to understand these things and discern these matters. Uh, that we may not go to the left or to the right, but walk the narrow path of Christ in doctrine and in practice. Lord, we do pray for thy help. And so, Lord, we give thee thanks for thy word and for the doctrines of Christ, including the Sabbath. Our hearers, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.